You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to welcome back Professor Kathleen Bartson Culver, the James E. Burgess Chair in Journalism Ethics and Director of the Center for Journalism Ethics in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication here at UW. Professor Culver was just awarded Teacher of the Year at Scripps Howard, recognizing excellence in journalism. We wanted to talk to Professor Culver about the influence of infographics on social media and political communication in the context of her research and teaching in the realm of media ethics. There's so much to talk about, so let's dive right in. First things first, Professor Culver, thank you so much for joining us today on 50 Bascom, and congratulations on the Scripps Howard Teacher of the Year Award. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It's been, it's been very fun to hear from folks about it. Let's jump right into questions about just kind of our current messy, nuanced media environment by talking about infographics and social media. Because recently, it seems like infographics have just like a stranglehold on social media. Like you can't scroll for more than a page on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook without spotting one of those clean, modern aesthetic infographics unveiling what you need to know about, you know, whatever issue. And we know that you teach a course on multimedia graphics amongst the many others you teach at the J School. Why do you think that these types of infographics have become so popular? Does it have to do with their style or ease of creation or distribution? Or is there maybe something else that we're not expecting? I think it's sort of all of the above, Sam. Um, and that is that they're easy to create. They're tremendously powerful. And our information environment is so jam-packed right now that something that stands out visually and communicate something very clearly and quickly is going to get attention. And that's what everybody's after. I mean, we are in an attention economy. And um, so, you know, trying to capture, you know, capture my attention and convert it into something, whether that's action or a purchase, uh, that's, that's why they're out there. That's why they're so dominant. And to take this a little bit more into the realm of sort of media ethics, do you see that there's a moral or an issue in general behind the popularity of these infographics or other activism type posts? Well, I think, so there's a lot in that question actually, because activism posts go well beyond infographics and we, and we can deal with the question of, of activism and, and uh, how it works, on, how it works on or doesn't work um, online. Um, but with, with infographics and, and the question of ethics, I think it's really important for all of us to be uh, skeptical consumers of these sorts of things, you know, in the same way words can lie and images can lie, the combination of words and images can deliver untruths to us. Um, you know, something as simple as skewing the y-axis on a chart can give you a completely different impression of the information that's presented. And so it's easy to manipulate our understanding of things through these infographics. So the same skepticism that I think we all ought to bring to anything within our information environment should attach to infographics. Just because it's clean and pretty doesn't mean it's truthful. Um, another ethics issue that comes up with infographics because they are, um, you know, they're so compact is whether they can provide the right kind of context. Because remember, truth doesn't just come from accurate facts. It comes from accurate facts in their correct context. And so, you know, thinking about if I were to encourage students as I do um, to build infographics with integrity, that context question is always the crucial question. That's a really, really interesting point. Are, are these changing the way that we're thinking about the spread of important information on these platforms? Yeah, it really, um, it really depends, Adam, on, on what infographic you're talking about and in what area. So when it comes to effective measures to combat coronavirus, uh, infographics were incredibly important tools. Um, you know, anytime, I, I remember early on in the pandemic sharing uh, one particularly effective one 
which was trying to encourage Wisconsinites to um, stand six feet apart. And the, in, the image used was a cow because a cow is roughly six feet long. And we all, we're in Wisconsin. We know the distance a cow takes up. And so that sets us apart from each other. That's, tr that's tremendous. That's a really great example of an infographic giving us actionable information uh, that we will remember in a humorous way, right? But infographics that skewed information about the big lie and the uh, 2020 election, boy, then we've got some really difficult questions um, to deal with. Infographics that shared false information about, um, about voter turnout, about um, widespread fraud. Those were all part of a coordinated effort to undercut belief in our free and fair election. And that's tremendously problematic and harmful. So we can't think about infographics as a medium and decide whether that medium is good or bad. It's all about the execution, their use. What's the, what is the purpose that someone is trying to achieve in putting that infographic out there? Are they trying to help me stay six feet apart uh, from someone in the grocery store so we don't infect each other? Or are they trying to make me believe that, uh, that this democracy is not as strong as it actually is? On that vein of thought, when we're looking at infographics and we're not just thinking about them as good or bad themselves, and we're thinking about the purpose behind them and the people that are making them, we have seen the rise of citizen journalists and uh, the rise of just people putting these kinds of infographics together. And there are some veins of thought that, you know, this could mean a more democratization of these media environments, or it could mean any number of other things. Are, th are these changes, are the, the rise in these citizen journalists and infographic makers, is this indicative of the health of our media environment in you know, a good way or in a bad way or in some way that hasn't really reared its head yet? So um, when I think about citizen journalists, I think um, not quite so narrowly on the question of infographics, but all sorts of all sorts of contributions to our information environment. Um, you know, if I if you want to talk about the power of non-journalists contributing to what we know, I have three words for you: video, George, and Floyd. Um, no journalist would have ever known that story. The press release that came out from the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, completely mischaracterized, I mean, that's not even a strong enough phrase, was untruthful about what had happened in that incident. So, you know, to the extent that people are capturing video, are characterizing things in ways that mainstream news outlets might not have characterized them, yes, that, that those are democratizing forces. But to the extent that someone is coming up with a graphic that shows voter fraud that didn't exist and putting it onto Facebook and trying to get people to share it, hugely problematic. One of the things I advocate for in the moment that we're in right now is this idea that journalism ethics ain't just for journalists anymore, <laughs> that, uh, that we should be thinking about an ethics of public communication that you know, not everybody is in the business of trying to tell stories neutrally or represent all sides of, of issues. And I get that, you know, we have advocates, we have partisans who are trying to convince people um, that their ideology uh, is, is worth signing on to. But so, you know, neutrality isn't going to be an ethic that, that would work with, you know, say a leader of a Black Lives Matter protest, but <laughs> accuracy and context should be, Minimizing harm should be, being accountable to people who um, are receiving your messages. All of those should be ethics that extend well beyond a journalistic newsroom. How likely do you think it is that most civilian journalists will choose to practice those ethics, though? Because I feel like practicing ethics in that way sets up kind of a prisoner's dilemma, right? Where if we're all competing for each other's attention and we know that attention can be grabbed through outrage, outrageous claims, things that violate typical pillars of journalism ethics, it seems like our media environment is going to reward people, especially uh, in a media environment so fractioned and splintered off into such small groups. It's going to reward those who profiteer off of that outrage and violation of media ethics. So I guess how optimistic or pessimistic are you that citizen journalists will actually pursue these ethics in the ways you describe? 
optimistic in part, pessimistic in another part. <laughs> so I think you're right. People are learning that uh, something that has been well-known in journalism and always problematic in journalism, which is that conflict sells. So in the same way you want to go see an Avengers movie because it's, a, it's the battle between the hero and the villain, when there's conflict in a political story, more people will read it, more people will click on it. And so you're seeing that, you're seeing that play out right now. But ethics isn't just about the production of information, it's also about the consumption of information. And so when I, um, whenever I, you know, talk with groups of citizens at a public library or a church gathering, and, you know, we talk about mis and disinformation, the first thing I say is, if you feel your emotions are triggered by something you are reading, hearing, or watching, don't react. <laughs> don't do it. Don't hit the like button. Don't hit the share button. Pause. Because if it's triggering an emotion in you, specifically the emotion of anger, um, you need to be skeptical about whether that's a message that you want to amplify. That's part of how mis and disinformation spreads. The people who produce it purposefully try to trigger an emotion because they know that that's what's going to be shared. Now, it's a problem. So consumers of information have, have responsibilities as well. And then I think we absolutely have to wrestle with the idea uh, that platforms have responsibilities and um, have made choices that, that make it hard for truthful information to compete. Um, so there are, there are choices that are built into algorithms that, I mean, right down to why do we see the number of people who have liked a tweet? At some point, Jack Dorsey decided that, that likes were a measure that we should put on a tweet. Why? Why is that? Why, why does that matter? You know, doesn't it just give the, um, the people who are quote unquote influencers, so you know, the more prominent you are, the more of those you're gonna get, and then that, that ups you in the algorithm. We should be really asking skeptical questions. Why does it work that way? It's kind of almost like I'm a parent. I remember each of my children when they were two years old and every third word out of their mouth was why. <laughs> That's what we should all be doing now. If we don't want to live in a fractured, polarized environment, and I think most of us don't, uh, we should be asking, um, why are we here? Why are we in this place? What is it about our structures that has led us here? And, and then um, how can we move beyond it? You might want to check out, there's a really great piece in The Atlantic right now by Adam Sewer about sort of the challenge that Joe Biden faces um, and how, um, you know, sinking, sinking to another level would damage his presidency and that, you know, he has to, he has to combat that, not just uh, for himself, his administration, but also supporters on the left. So you might, that, that might be something you want to check out um, and read. Um, I, I do think... Uh, we have lost a sense of saying that there are responsibilities that are, whether it's civic leaders, politicians, you know, the elites, um, that they should adhere to. They have social responsibilities, and those have been abandoned over the last, you know, however many years. Um, I do... I really get very concerned about kind of whataboutism. So, well, Trump did this, but what about Obama doing that? It just, I, I really, I find those to be arguments to be completely unconvincing. Um, but I would say we should all, and, and I recommend this across the board, not just in a political context, but we should all think about who are our anti-role models? Who are people who do things that we don't think are responsible, that we don't think are justifiable, that we think are, are damaging to others? And then set about making sure that we do not do those things. So, you know, if you ever had a bad boss, that's a really great way to help you figure out how to be a good boss. Whatever that person would do, I'm not going to do. It's kind of like George Costanza on Seinfeld. It's going to be opposite day. I'm going to do the opposite of what I think I should do. Um, and so, so those anti-role models in politics, you know, if you think that someone on the left or on the right is bombastic or is twisting information, then you set about to, to not behave as that person has, has behaved. The other thing is, 
if someone, you said, Amy, on your side, if someone on your side is doing something you disagree with, you should stand up to them. You should hold them accountable. You should say that you disagree, you know, respond to the tweet, um, unfollow, mute someone, don't subscribe to their Substack. You know, that, that, that they may be being bombastic because they think that gets them more of you. And when they see that that gets them less of you, uh, then, then maybe the behavior does change. Also, as kind of a follow-up to that, and also just as we're talking in general about more and more people consuming information and getting their news and um, updates on current events through social media, do you think now more than in the past, there's a responsibility for educators to inform students as they're growing up in a digital environment how to behave ethically online and what that looks like? Yeah, there has never been a more important time for media literacy in, in pre-K through college <laughs> um, and, and beyond, you know, like, you know, events on media literacy at your local library where senior citizens can come in and learn about disinformation. I think those are really important civic efforts. You know, look, the news media are wonderful. I, will I, I love journalism. We make a lot of mistakes. I will never defend um, unethical practices in journalism. Uh, but overall, I think the story of American journalism is a very positive story. We're a great civic institution. We're not the only one. <laughs> You're seeing, look, vaccination is a great example. Um, news media can put out all sorts of great stories about, you know, here are the risks, here are what experts are telling you, here's, you know, here, here's where you can find um, a, a vaccine. Um, but they're not the only ones. A preacher is going to be incredibly important uh, to getting um, to getting their flock to be vaccinated. A primary care physician or a nurse practitioner, tremendously important. Your dentist <laughs> might be uh, someone. So um, you know, people, business leaders within um, within a community. All of those civic institutions are very, very important. Um, and during the pandemic, you did see sort of a breakdown in the information environment um, when. Um, governments as civic institutions were not doing enough to inform uh, their own citizens. So, um, you know, I heard from a number of journalists um, throughout the pandemic who were calling to say, look, people are calling me and asking, you know, how can I get access to a vaccine? Or um, I don't, I don't know where to get tested. You know, do I help them? Do what do I do? How do I how do I manage this? Um, and to which I say, well, yeah, don't get their personal health information. Don't make the vaccine appointment or testing appointment for them. But certainly, you there is a gap in information coming from the government in your community, and you are another civic institution that can help these folks. Now that uh, the cat is kind of out of the bag, or maybe the uh, tweeting bird is out of its cage in our conversation about social media, we want to kind of dig down on a couple of specific platforms and get some of your insights on how they influence the media environment and our consumption of news. So first, you know, that tweeting bird, Twitter. What are we to do about the fact that Twitter seems to have become a key, if not primary source of news and discussion among political and media elites. There's plenty of commentators who think that it's a terrible way to discuss important topics and that it breeds polarization and is ultimately dehumanizing. But at the same time, it seems like to be part of the conversation and stay relevant, politicians and journalists have to be on Twitter. I, I know I am, and I probably spend too much time on it. So what are your thoughts on Twitter as our means of political discourse? And what do you think the trajectory of the quality of this discourse on Twitter might be in the future? Yeah, I think, Sam, you know, probably from taking my class that, uh, that I, I advise students that this is a tool but it's not the tool. And it's very important to remember that, you know, if you were in a room of a hundred people, there would be you and three other reporters and then, and then six or seven politicians, and you'd be hanging in a corner talking to each other. That's what Twitter is. Um, and the people who, um, the other people in the room are having other conversations that you're not hearing because you're only in that corner. And so, yeah, it's a place you need to be. You need to pay attention to what's going on there, but you need to remember that it's only 10% of the population that's the US population that's there. And, uh, and, the, and that portion is a certain set of people. 
politicians are overrepresented, journalists are overrepresented, um, activists in some arenas are overrepresented. And so you need to take great care as a journalist to make sure you're finding the other 90 people in that room who you're supposed to be representing. I think we also have to be very concerned about um, bot activity on Twitter, which we know amps polarization. We know that it's out there specifically designed to separate us and drive us to our partisan corners of the room. You know, there's a study out of, uh, by some, some of my colleagues here at UW-Madison in the journalism school uh, that showed the number of times that journalists were um, including tweets and stories, embedding tweets and stories that were coming from Russian disinformation campaigns. So they were not people who were actually uh, chiming in about the 2016 election. Uh, they were bots. So I think we, we all have to be uh, careful about that. I don't think Twitter is going away anytime soon. Um, I think it will remain a, a relevant platform, but it can't be the only platform. And we have to be disciplined. Like, if you, you know, you should be self-reflective about, hmm, am I spending too much time on here? And what does that mean? I had an interesting uh, conversation with a young alum who um, is a news reporter here in Wisconsin. And she, um, she had tweeted out about some, I think, I'm pretty sure it was vaccine availability. Yeah, it was. It was vaccine availability when we were still in like the 75 and older category in Wisconsin. And um, she was saying there was going to be some new availability at this community center the following day. And, and I replied to her and said, hey, remember to be multimodal here because you're, the people who are eligible for this vaccine are not reading this tweet. And she, and she said, oh, of course, definitely, you know, we're going to have a story in tomorrow morning's paper. It'll be in the newsletter, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then some other follower of her, her said that I was being a pill. But, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it is an important mode but we have to remember that it's skewed in certain directions and that some people are not there and we have to take active steps to make sure we're, we're dealing with other modes. With the rise of Substack and these other paid newsletters by some journalists who are deciding to move away from Twitter as a platform and to some smaller audiences, some people would say that that is enabling more balanced discussion or more reasoned discussions. What do you think on that or just that form of journalism in general? Yeah, the Substackers aren't moving off Twitter. They're just using Twitter to promote their Substacks. <laughs> so, you know, so they're having longer form stuff. That, I mean, what they're moving off of is other mainstream platforms. So leaving the opinion desk of the New York Times and, and going and trying to make money off of Substack. I do have some concerns about Substack. I have concerns about, um, about concentrating wealth in a few voices um, that can garner those big audiences. So, you know, if uh, a Nick Kristoff is bringing in tons of eyeballs uh, to the New York Times and some subscriptions to the New York Times, he's not the only one who profits, right? So, so that helps pay for, you know, my uh, former student who is a community builder there um, and the person who's doing some data analysis on um, the COVID project, right? So he's, he, is, he is a marquee name who brings in revenue He's not the only one who benefits. If Nick Kristoff leaves the Times and goes to, to Substack alone, um, then he becomes the well. He and Substack actually become the ones who profit. So it's so it's like um, you know, coverage of the Green Bay Packers helps pay for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reporter who covers the city council, right? And so if all of a sudden all of the Green Bay Packer coverage left the Journal Sentinel, you couldn't afford that reporter in the same way. So that's that's a, a concern when it comes to Substack. There's there's an element to it that, you know, some people use the term selfish. I'm I wouldn't go so far as that. But um, I do think that 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 format, um, newsletters, I'm talking about, so not just Substack, but the kind of a newsletter approach, um, I think that format has tremendous potential. Um, there's, there's a lot of engagement uh, that can happen and people who have a specific subject matter interest um, can get can get that fed and you can learn some, you can learn some really good things. So I think the, the newsletter approach uh, has promise. Substack does concern me. You know, when I when you say that, I think immediately of a newsletter that I love to read, which is Dave Weigel's The Trailer, which comes from the Washington Post. Is that kind of the future of newsletter that you think has real promise and can actually garner like real engagement with some nitty gritty topics like 
on the ground election coverage like Dave Weigel covers? Yeah, and uh, Weigel is a great example of people feel a really um, deep connection. But but remember, he's doing other reporting too. It's not like these are just people. There's a there's a difference between someone who is out there gathering information and sharing insights from that information, and someone who's just popping off uh, with their opinion on you know the culture war topic of the day, whatever that happens to be. Um, so I yes, I do think newsletters um, are. There's a lot of engagement that comes. They're sort of very personality branded. You know, you can, I don't need to see the title of the newsletter to know the difference at, between David Leonhardt at the New York Times and, and Weigel at the Post. You know, it's good. It's just fundamentally different voice and people feel that connection. It personalizes the news for them. But those have to be in addition to, not in place of the kinds of reported stories. You know, he, so, um, you know, Leonhardt can't do his newsletter if there isn't reporting going on at the Times, at the Post, from the AP, um, from, sometimes from local journalism he pulls. And so, so you know, it's, it's, I guess, all of the above <laughs> would be my approach to these different modes of sharing information. You mentioned uh, the culture war of the day, and I guess we can jump right into it. The topic of cancel culture and how the phrase has the buzzword of it, I guess, has just flown the coop. It is everywhere these days. And it's coming from both sides. What do you think the impact of this new phenomenon we're seeing has on, you know, those who are quote unquote fairly and quote unquote unfairly canceled? I guess, what's your just take on this more generally? So, there was a time in my life when I believed I could never find a phrase more vacuous than politically correct. And then along came cancel culture. <laughs> and, uh, and I will go to my grave trying to defeat this phrase um, because I, I may start finding people a quarter if they use it in my presence um, because it doesn't mean anything. Um, we're not talking about cancel culture we're talking about consequence culture. The idea that we would have a free speech environment in the United States that was free of consequences flies in the face of two centuries of, of, of um, you know, information environment development and by the way, First Amendment jurisprudence. Uh, there have always been consequences for what we say. We, you know, the, the, cl the classic example, your, your right to swing your fist ends at my nose. <laughs> so, so your right to say what you, whatever you want, if I am offended by that or hurt by that or defamed by that, you will have consequences. The question becomes, and so, so if we move to this idea of it's a consequence culture, and we all have to accept that there are consequences, consequences to our expression. There, there are, there just are. Um, then the question becomes, how do we address it, address the situation when the consequence becomes disproportionate? So the consequence that I'm paying for my expression far exceeds whatever the problem was with the expression, if there, or if even there was a problem at all, right? So if I um, include in my class a reading that is, um, you know, critical of the um, the framing defund the police, right? So so it's, it it looks from from some pretty convincing data that the phrase defund the police hurt uh, hurt Democratic candidates um, in public opinion. So a lot really solid public opinion, really solid support for um, dealing with police violence, support for Black Lives Matter. But when that phrase bubbled up, it became problematic. Now, again, I'm not a public opinion expert, but from what I read, it's pretty convincing. So let's say I include a reading on that in my class. Um, and someone who really believes in an abolitionist approach to police and policing and incarceration, then you know calls me out, wants me fired, wants me taken out of that class, whatever. Um, if I include the reading and the consequences, that student coming up after class or sending me an email saying, look, I really, I'm offended by this. I think, I don't think you should have included this reading, whatever, whatever. That's a consequence, right? He disagrees with me and he's challenging me and he's holding me accountable. That's a perfectly acceptable consequence 
for my decision to include that reading. Calling for me to be fired is not, that's a disproportionate consequence. So we need to get far more into the nuance of these cases and we're gonna disagree, right? So someone who is you know, very far on the left is gonna think that firing me is an acceptable consequence and someone on the right is gonna say, scream, oh my God, cancel culture, blah, 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 right? But we need to have, we're adults people, like let's have mature discussions about what price should be paid when you speak in certain ways about certain things. I have, and this is a really interesting, there's some strange bedfellows when it comes to this topic, because it's coming, the call is coming from inside the house on both the left and the right, right? You know, very, very squeezed from both directions. Um, and so I think we need to get rid of this vacuous cancel culture phrase. We need to focus on consequences and we need to be really freaking honest with each other about when consequences are disproportionate. On that note, thank you. That was a fantastic answer. Do you have any personal preference or a view on what platform would be the best for this type of more reasoned, mature, democratic deliberation on political issues? Yeah, is your, is your, coffee table um, a, a platform in your mind um, you know what look my best advice to folks is get and, and maybe when we reemerge from this um, as I like to call it the pandemic <laughs> when we when we emerge from this damn thing um, I hope people will be more eager to engage in person um, we do and say things to and about each other when there's this digital wall between us that we would never say in person. There is bullying that goes on on Snapchat that would never happen actually in a school cafeteria. There are things that are said about each other on Twitter that would not happen if you were standing next to me in the grocery store. Um, although certainly we have seen some really crazy grocery store behavior when it comes to mask mandates. But in any case, um, I think engaging with each other in real life is incredibly, incredibly important. That said, when you're talking about digital platforms, you should be diversified. And when, I, I mean, diversified in that, okay, don't just be on Insta, don't just be on Twitter, don't just be reading, um, you know, don't just be on Facebook. So diversify across a number of things, but also diversify what you're taking in and take in things that you disagree with, like things that would not reinforce your worldview. Like, you know, maybe if you are a lifelong NPR listener, you ought to try a conservative talk show once in a while. Not all day, every day. Uh, one way I do it is I change my browser window. You know, when you can set your browser window to open to a specific homepage each time you create a new window, I change it up. I make it, you know, some, some days it might be the New York Times, some days it's the, well, the Wall Street Journal is tough because I can't, I don't, it's so expensive, I can't pay for all the stories, but uh, sometimes it's the Associated Press, sometimes it's Fox News. And you just, you know, taking in things that don't just create this happy dopamine party in your brain, telling you constantly that you're right because, oh, this, you know, this Vox story reinforces what I already believed. Um, you, you have to, you have to be open to changing your mind about things. It's a really important question everybody should ask themselves. Like, when was the last time you changed your mind about something you really believed in passionately? When did you open your mind to something else? I don't think it's very often for most of us. I am concerned about the piling on, the, the mob mentality. You know, virtue signaling is such an interesting uh, phrase. I have a, a friend who um, watches quite a bit of Fox News and uh, we were, last summer, we were together with some other friends and this friend said, well, you know, what is, what does virtue signaling mean? And I was like, well, it comes from a, it comes from a concept from Aristotelian ethics that um, when you have moral, uh, moral exemplars within a and she was like, that's not what it is. It's when you're on the woke left and you want to, um, and you want to virtue, you want to signal that you're so virtuous and you do this and you do that. And I was like, Oh, I guess I totally missed that. You know, here I am with my like stupid philosopher prof brain, like, oh, well, Aristotle, blah, blah, blah. And it, it meant something completely different to her. Um, I think that we all need to be very, very careful um, in considering the twin 
pillars of intent and impact. And right now we are seem very squarely focused on impact and I'm not, I do not wanna be heard as undercutting the idea of impact, but we've also gotta consider intent. It's a, it's a very fine line to walk um, because oftentimes people will say, well, she didn't intend it. And then that just means that like by saying there is no pillar of intent, then there can be no pillar of impact. Well, that's not true. Like how many of you, like how many people out there have ever been, you know, harmed or hurt by something that someone said unintentionally? Oh my God, like half the things my mother said to me growing up were like, you know, not half, that's a gross exaggeration. But there were, there were many times my mother who was quite direct would say something that she did not intend to be hurtful, but hurt my feelings, right? Um, and so just because you didn't intend it doesn't mean that it had no impact, okay? That's, that's really important to remember. But also just because it harmed you doesn't mean you can't consider the intent. And perhaps when the intent gets considered, then the harm, then that abates the harm a bit. So that's a really, delicate, sensitive issue. And frankly, um, I feel like I can talk about it from my perspective as a woman, but I don't feel like I have enough perspective as a white woman, right? So, uh, you know, I have not, I have not endured years, decades, a lifetime of being degraded because of my race or ethnicity. So I want to be really careful. The impact on me from certain statements is less because I haven't endured that time and time and time again. And yet, particularly in an educational environment, um, we intent is, you know, we're all, especially for, you know, 19, 20 year olds, they're, they're learning. And sometimes they're coming from highly, highly segregated environments where they're, they've never run across someone who doesn't look like they look. So um, I was in a session with a wonderful professor from um, the law school who said, you know, what she tries to do in considering those twin pillars of intent and impact is to respond with grace. So to respond with grace, the kind of grace she would want to receive um, had, were she on the opposite side. And there's a, there's a, really great philosopher who, um, who his name is John Rawls, and he focuses on justice, issues of justice. Um, and uh, he, it's, she's, he sort of preaches the same approach, that when you respond, respond as if you don't know whether you're the person who spoke or the person who was harmed. Um, you could end up in either. So how would you want the system to be set up? Now, there are there are reasonable critiques of that approach, but, and this is a very long winded answer to your question, I'm sorry. <laughs> but before you pile on someone who has done something, ask how you would want to be responded to in, if the roles were reversed. That's the, way, that's the way I try to look at it. That's not to say, say nothing, because wouldn't it be horribly unfair to that person who misstepped to not tell her that she misstepped? because then she's going to go messed up again. So when I make a mistake, I like people to tell me. In my journalism career, I was very, I, not, not fortunate to have screwed up as badly as I did, but very fortunate to have someone who cared enough to tell me. Um, otherwise, he could have just gone away and been pissed and, and not corrected me, but he took the time and he did it with great grace. And I am forever grateful to him. He was a farmer. It was a story on a drought. Um, and he took the time uh, to help me. So um, so I guess that's my, my advice to folks is let's restore some respect for each other, some mutual respect. Let's understand that we're all humans and we make mistakes. Let's understand that some people are harmed by things more than others because of the way, because of the structures in the society and the way that the ways that they've been treated over time. And, uh, and let's think about how to respond to each other so that we prevent further harms, uh, but we don't pile on. Yeah, I definitely think that plays right into what you said earlier. We just have to act like adults. We have to, we have to be nice to each other when we need to be. But one thing I wanted to make sure and quickly ask you and when you were talking about the Wall Street Journal, this 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 question popped into my head. Is there a problem also with, you know, as we're thinking about 
the ways that social media is affecting us and as we're getting news from it, is is there a paywall problem? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I'm actually, I'm like smacking myself uh, um, upside the head right now <laughs> because every example that I've used here has been a national example. And I think that's a mistake too. Um, I think we need to engage with our local community level journalism. Um, and when you when you look at, um, at trust in journalism, um, trust goes up the smaller the outlet gets or the more local the outlet becomes. So, you know, less trust in CNN or, um, or the New York Times, greater trust in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Um, so diversifying, you know, at the local level as well, because, you know, when you are talking about within just say the community of Madison and dealing or Dane County and dealing with um, the, you know, whether and when to mask and what should be open and what should be closed and all of that is far more productive environment than when we even blow out to just the Wisconsin level and fighting about um, about mask mandates and, that, and the like. Um, so, so diversify in that way. Um, yes, <laughs> when paywalls go up and news becomes less accessible to people, um, it, that can be a problem. But journalism has to figure out how to fund itself. You know, I mean, you, you have reporters to pay. Um, you have editors to pay. And anybody who thinks that the news business is like this, you know, super profitable, awesome thing. I mean, maybe they're talking about a few national level anchors, but they're not talking about the person who's doing your six o'clock news on Channel 3. That is not a highly compensated wealthy person. Okay. Um, so we have, there's a there's definitely a problem at the local news level with the business model. Um, TV has an advantage over sort of the print digital um, outlets and so less inclined to have paywalls go up. I think there are, I think many news organizations have done a wonderful job of looking at the public service aspects of their work and, and um, busting down the paywall when necessary. Virtually every news organization in the country, for instance, Put its coronavirus coverage outside the paywall so you didn't have to pay to get it. Um, that happened um, in some outlets, for instance, during the protests last summer. Um, coverage of the George Floyd case was outside the paywall of the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Um, so, so I think, I think a lot of organizations are very thoughtful about that. And yet, if we can't figure out, if, ev if everybody believes that all news should be free, there's just going to be less news produced because we can't do it. And as we're kind of coming into uh, near the end of the podcast, do you want to draw a little bit on your experience in and expertise in media law to ask a couple of questions in this field? So the first thing I want to ask is just something kind of, you know, general with regarding media law and First Amendment jurisprudence. And do you think the federal government should regulate social media sites more similarly to how it regulates public forms? Because free speech doctrine in public forms allows most speakers to speak inside of a public forum under content neutral restrictions and that there might be restrictions on times, place, or means, but the federal government can't deny I somebody the right to speak in that public form based off of the actual content of their speech in and of itself. Whereas there are many people who argue that social media is the new public form. You know, the town square or the park is dead. So it's unfair to allow tech companies to have the power to eliminate any speaker they want from their platform. And that this say maybe public form standard should be applied to social media companies. But others disagree, arguing that these are private companies that have the right to maintain whatever kind of environment they want, and that they're doing so prevents harmful actions and platforming people who can cause a real harm to others. What do you think about this debate? Where would you weigh in? So, oh my gosh, we need an hour for this, or maybe even a day for the answer to this question. Uh, you know, it's really interesting. So so what's at issue here, well, there are lots of things at issue here, but one, one of the key um, points here is this thing called Section 230. So Section 230 is an element of the Communications Decency Act that's passed when I was a wee tot in the uh, 1990s. Um, and uh, much of the Communications Decency Act was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. But Section 230 lived on. And Section 230 gives um, protections. Everybody says it's um, it's complete immunity, but that's not actually correct. So it gives broad-based protections 
to platforms, internet service providers, as, the, as they're called, <laughs> um, uh, so that if um, if someone does something on their platform, so let's uh, let's just say that um, Sam. Uh, I'll just pick. I'll just pick on you because I know you can take it. Uh, let's say you post something. Um, let's say you write a story in the Badger Herald saying that Katie Culver uh, trades grades for fentanyl. <laughs> so I've got this drug trafficking business, and I'm. I, I'll give you an A if you give me if you give me fentanyl. Um, you, you mean you the story I sent that. to my editor last week? Yeah, exactly, Sam. Uh, so if you publish that in the Badger Herald, um, and it's not true, which it is not true, let's be clear. Um, and it's not true. I can sue you and I can sue the Badger Herald because they're a publisher, right? Um, so if you post it to Facebook, I can sue you, but I cannot sue Facebook because of Section 230. And Section 230, I want to be clear, was put in place for very, very good reasons. Um, one, to stimulate innovation in digital platforms. Um, but two, to encourage platforms to police the content that, that was on their platforms. Um, so there were a couple of cases at the time that, that ended in different results. And, and one of them was very scary um, because it said, if an internet service, the, the ruling said essentially, if an, inter if an internet service provider, so in my example, if Facebook edits any content at all, so if they take anything down, then they're no longer a neutral platform. They are now a publisher. So it makes it would make Facebook into the Badger Herald in our example here. And so that what that would mean is that there it would disincentivize these platforms from doing anything about um, you know child pornography, abusive language, defamation. It would basically be a complete free-for-all, the Wild West on these platforms. And Congress said rightfully um, that no no we want to give them an incentive to monitor this content and take it down when it's problematic we definitely want to encourage that we don't want them to be penalized for doing that so so please let's give them these this um, these these broad-based protections so and it made a lot of sense and it helped um, because there would be absolutely no way that jack dorsey would take hate speech off of twitter or Mark Zuckerberg um, would take violent speech um, off of Facebook if that meant that they lost their legal protections. So people who are saying repeal Section 230 have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> it, can't, it can't be repealed. It would we would go dark, right? We would go absolutely dark. Um, so should these platforms have the power? Yes, they should have the power to take down content because there's also in, inherent in here is the concept of cons compelled speech. So the government can't censor your speech, but they can't also also can't force you to say something that you don't want to say. And so I I really don't understand the argument that that Facebook should be compelled to allow hateful speech on its platform. Like you can't make me put an anti Semitic bumper sticker on my car. Like it's it's not going to happen. You can't you can't force the Badger Herald uh, to run um, a pro-slavery editorial. It just doesn't, it, it just makes no sense whatsoever. So people who are painting on 230 with such a broad brush, I think they're just they're I, I don't know, maybe they're smoking something, but but they're just they're just flat out wrong. That said, it, it, we do have an insane amount of power invested in this very small number of companies. And so, yes, there are some reforms to Section 230 that can be put in place, but I'm also very interested to see things like um, Amy Klobuchar's proposals on antitrust. Um, you know, it, the, the, problem, the problem isn't that, you know, Facebook can take down whatever it wants, like they can pull down a post of mine or that YouTube can pull down something I put up um, because they say it's a copyright problem. That's, that's not the problem they have the freedom to do that. To me, the problem is that there's only one Facebook and there's only one YouTube and they're so dominant and they eat their competitors. Um, 
so you know that the antitrust might be an interesting interesting way for us to address this problem. I don't think that you know Senator Ted Cruz is thinking about that when he's attacking uh, these platforms. But it, it's going to be interesting to see. There certainly is more steam behind antitrust than in all the time I've known any of these platforms. Um, and also, I, I just I'm super curious to. I would love to survey. <laughs> students, my law students from five years ago, you know, when I used to lecture on section 230, and it means this, and I would use my, it, and, and it would be like this, oh, what was that thing she said? And then now it's like the hottest news item in the country. Like they must have been thought that, oh, she taught me something meaningful. <laughs> Absolutely. There's so much more here, but we do want to be respectful of your time. So just to end on a more positive note, obviously it's been a very heavy and difficult year for everyone. So we've been asking all of our guests, what is one thing that makes you hopeful? Oh, you guys. <laughs> um, I, I am so unbelievably hopeful about this generation of students. I it, like, oh my goodness, the, the passion, the compassion, um, the energy, the interest, the smarts, the humor, uh, you know, my classrooms are more electric now. Well, it's kind of funny. In a pandemic, they're zoomified. Um, but there is there is a, a better buzz and, and a greater energy um, than than I recall ever having. And so I'm very optimistic about what people your age are going to do um, in this world. I really you you have big problems to solve. I'll tell you that <laughs> we've 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 left some stuff on your doorstep that you're going to have to clean up. And, and I prom I pledge to be right there alongside you. Um, but when I look at this, gen this generation that's coming up now, high school into college, uh, I am very much glasses half full. I, I think, uh, I, I think that we could really move forward on a lot of critically important things because of what you guys are bringing. Well, I think I can speak for my fellow co-hosts and all of our student listeners to uh, say that it means a lot to hear you say that. We we appreciate that very, very much. And I mean every word thank of it. <laughs> you, well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on 1050 Bascom today, Professor Colbert. It's been great having you on the pod. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. What a great, what a great set of questions and a really fun conversation. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.